I was in a church in uh, Denver, big church. I got to know the uh, two ministers there, and there was a break in the uh, order of the service one day. The assistant minister stepped beyond the podium, the lectern, whatever you want to call it, and uh, there were there were gasps from the audience. That's, that's the way it was. Now, see, we haven't established an order of service here, and so you don't realize that we're breaking it. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to make the first announcement. Now, why would the minister make the first announcement? What would you think it would be about? Money, right, that's right. <laughs> okay. So today, we're going to have questions and answers. Uh, <laughs> back in school again. And uh, this, is, this is one of the first questions. There are a few that came up during the week. And then you'll have a chance to ask any if you'd like. And it's the question of money. Perennial question. Now, in Manny's ministerial school in New Claude, Texas, <clears throat> where I got my doctorate of dispensability, <laughs> Manny, actually we used to call him Dr. Manny, Dr. Manny said, never tell the congregation what the expenses are. So he would be very disappointed in what I'm going to do this morning. He said, you should intimate, intimate the experiences. He says, think of it as a horror movie in which you never quite see the monster. <laughs> see. But, since we're going to talk about uh, money, it is, of course, a good thing to be informed as to what your financial situation is. And for some reason, this is not an ideal at this particular time in our history. The spiritual ideal is that we do not pay attention to where our money is going, how much we're spending for anything, because this is just also spiritual to do it that way. And so we're always in sort of uh, a financial chaos. So, of course, we first must know what our financial situation is. So I'm going to tell you what the church spends. We spend $350 a month for rent. Now you can feel, with each thing, you feel a little more guilty. Because you remember how much you gave, you see, the time before. We spend $180 for music. This is a month. $350 a month. Uh, $240 for Sunday school. That will be our uh, expenses very shortly. $340 for Sunday school. $100 for our coordinating manager. That is not me. Being an ascended saint, I, of course, take no money from the church. <laughs> we have a person who does far more work than he should, and so I insisted that he receive $100 a month, although he objected strenuously to it. And we have a bookkeeper who was also spending a tremendous amount of time because we've got a tax number now. And it's, it's, it's in part because of her efforts that we did this. Uh, so she receives a whopping $50 a month. And then for food, 
Oh, listen to this. Food. Tonight, today after the service, you have got um, chocolate fall-aparts. <laughs> First you eat the chocolate, then you fall apart. He said that's the way it works. You have apricot witches. No, we're going to change that now. <laughs> now, we're renting this building from another denomination. We'll change the name of that. Um, apricot avatars, maybe, huh? All right. <laughs> We've got donut holes. Uh, I've got, we've got something I can't read. S-T-O-E-L. Stolen. All right. Pumpkin pies. Uh, we've got uh, apricot. We've got uh, honey bread. Uh, we've got uh, cheese nips. Uh, and so forth, you see. Now, so for uh, sheet music, Xeroxing, Incidentally, you can take anything that's here. If you want to leave it, we'll, we'll, we can use it again. But if you wish to take a hymn with you, or if you wish to take uh, the meditation that we had, for example, the last uh, two Sundays, uh, if you think that would be helpful, please do that. But pay next time. <laughs> <clears throat> so that all adds up. Uh, there are those three, those things, food, sheet music, Xeroxing, and so forth, uh, miscellaneous expenses are about $300 a month. So that comes to $1,320 a month. Um, now, we also, in addition to that, we have our book table and we have our um, tape business, which at the moment, if you add both those things to, they're about zero. Uh, it's neither a gain nor a loss. We're about breaking even, even on all that. Also, we have the discretionary fund so that when you mark something for the discretionary fund, we put that in the fund. Actually, it's a separate bookkeeping operation rather than a separate account. And that money is only spent on people who are in need. And I, it, it of course, would defeat the purpose if I were to discuss the individual cases that have received money you just have to trust us on that. But if I start doing that, then, of course, people are going to feel reluctant to ask for help because they'll, they're afraid they're going to be identified. But uh, these are people that we, we know just are very, very much in need. And uh, oftentimes they're people that we find out about rather than come to us for help. And we just go out and do what we can for them. Uh, so that money is really aside from everything. Whatever you put in the discretionary fund is spent only for that. Now, what is the goal? The goal is that you should neither give nor withhold out of fear, and that you should neither give nor withhold out of gain. The mistake is that people give either because they feel guilty or they give out of a sense of excitement. You know, there's that, uh, every minister, Manny taught us this phrase right away. Every minister knows uh, the phrase in the Bible, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, and try me now herewith, saith the Lord, 
if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you shall not have room enough to receive it. Tithes, of course, means 10% of your income. I wish I could tell you that I believe that, uh, but I don't really believe that it works that way, and I don't really believe that that's what was meant in the Bible. It doesn't matter what it was meant or not meant in a literal sense. But the thought is, you give 10% of your income, and boy, do you make big bucks in return. So to give out of a hope of gain is equal an equal mistake than to give out of a sense of guilt. The point is that what you'd like to do is to just see in peace how much you would like to give. Or if you would rather not give this particular Sunday. And that's perfectly all right. Maybe your family needs the money more than this church does. Maybe it would make you anxious to give money this particular Sunday. And if that's the case, of course you don't want to give money. There is, there's no, this, this church has no more pressing need than anything else. The sun shines on everything equally. And so there is no special emphasis in this particular organization. But if you would like to help us, then of course we can use the money. Uh, aside from the bookkeeper and the uh, general manager, none of us take any money from the church. That's the way we've done it right from the beginning. And I think that's probably the way we'll continue doing it. I don't receive any money for the, for the tapes either. We're just more peaceful doing it that way. It isn't right to do it that way. It's just more peaceful for us as individuals to do it that way. So what I'd like you to do, because the plates usually pass during the announcements, is that Gail's going to get up and make the rest of the announcements. The plate will be passed. But before that happens, I want to invite you to close your eyes right now and to see whether or not you would like to give any money today, and how much money you would feel peaceful giving. You understand the situation, and then you would look at your own situation, and then you decide in peace what you would like to do with your money, knowing that it's, 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 there's no more magic or condemnation attached to it than if you were to give money to someone that was ringing a bell out, you know, on the sidewalk in the plaza. So let's do that together. Let's close our eyes and see in peace what we would like to do this morning, this morning only. And if this little speech works, I will do it every once a month. You say. <sighs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Now, all right, now. Okay, now close your eyes and just see how much you'd like to give in peace or not give. Okay, now, don't be blinded by the, the beauty of our uh, deacons who are, will now pass the plate during the announcements. See, this, was not, this is not by design that we have these two particular deacons. Where is Shara? Is she? Okay, all right, so they're both going to get up now, very, very flushed and embarrassed by Mario Moore. All right, we'll do the rest of this one. Ha, 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 ha.
morning's reading is from the text of A Course in Miracles, page 216. You are afraid of me because you looked within and are afraid of what you saw. Yet you could not have seen reality, for the reality of your mind is the loveliest of God's creations. Coming only from God, its power and grandeur could only bring you peace if you really looked upon it. If you are afraid, it is because you saw something that is not there. Yet in that same place you could have looked upon me and all your brothers in the perfect safety of the mind which created us. For we are there in the peace of the Father who wills to extend his peace through you. When you have accepted your mission to extend peace, you will find peace. For by making it manifest, you will see it. Its holy witnesses will surround you because you called upon them, and they will come to you. I have heard your call, and I have answered it, but you will not look upon me nor hear the answer that you sought. That is because you do not yet want only that. Yet as I become more real to you, you will learn that you do want only that. And you will see me as you look within, and we will look upon the real world together. Through the eyes of Christ, only the real world exists, and only the real world can be seen. As you decide, so will you see, and all that you see but witnesses to your decision. When you look within and see me, it will be because you have decided to manifest truth. And as you manifest it, you will see it both without and within. Everything you behold without is a judgment of what you beheld within. If it is your judgment, it will be wrong, for judgment is not your function. If it is the judgment of the Holy Spirit, it will be right for judgment is his function. You share his function only by judging as he does, reserving no judgment at all for yourself. You will judge against yourself, but he will judge for you. So I said earlier, we're going to have questions and answers this morning, and... So the first question, what should I say to a friend who tells me she saw my husband with another woman, which happens frequently? Okay, if you got your pencils, I'll tell you what to say. What you say is, wait till I get my hands on him, I'm going to wring his neck. This is actually not bad advice to someone who's being such a good friend to you is to tell you this because the first line is wait until I get my hands on him so if they would actually do that if they would just wait there until you got your hands on him and wrung his neck they wouldn't bear these tales anymore you see but the ego doesn't know whether to wring his neck or to wring the other woman's neck or to wring the person who 
bore the tail's neck or to wring your own neck because you're sure you're the one who's caused all this. We, of course, do hear things that upset us, and that's, the, that's really the question here. What do we do when someone tells us something, or even when we find ourselves in a situation that's very upsetting? The first rule is, do not be afraid to be holy. Not holier than, but just to be holy. There will be certain sensations that will go off in your body. Anxiety. Uh, anger. Revenge. These do not have to be acted on. There is another set of feelings deeper still. You could think of that as your heart. What does your heart react? How does it counsel you? So we do not have to honor the surface sensations that a particular situation calls forth. And sometimes these are quite incongruous. As we know, when we go to an amusement park or to a movie or something, and we feel very strong sensations... But we realize that these sensations do not have to be honored because our eyes are being tricked. This is very important. Your eyes can be tricked, and so can your ears. And if you go into the haunted house or uh, whatever it may be, you've had your eyes tricked. The certain uh, uh, ride in which it looks as if you're going to be flung off into space or dropped to your certain death. And yet you know this is not going to happen. But your eyes and ears report this to your body, and your body goes, Ah! Now, do you have to act on that? Of course not. You don't act on it. Why, then, do you have to act on it if it happens during... Why would it be suppression to not act on it during the day, but to... Uh, Excuse me, to not act... Uh, <laughs> you, you understood the point, didn't you? <laughs> so that's the first rule. <laughs> now, if you are the bearer of the tale, let's just say some, a few simple, obvious things that will make you happier. It will make you happier if you do not feel that you must warn your friends or warn anyone. This, of course, could be carried to an extreme. If you can see, for if you go into a house, for example, and you see that uh, there's something wrong with their electrical system and they don't realize it, uh, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But to believe that we must inform another person of the character of a third person is not a happy thing to do, and just notice that it has almost never had the results that you wished for it to have. It's confusing. It's upsetting. It sets people at odds with each other. It is not the way to be truly helpful. So if you will drop that, of course, that will make you happier. It will make you happier if this is being reported to you, if you do not seek revenge. It is always best not to retaliate. 
it's always best not to take direct action against the world. If you wish to be happy, to seek revenge, to try to balance the scale, it is always happier not to do that. But notice that although you are beyond doing this in the gross ways, perhaps you are not yet beyond doing it in more subtle ways. So now you're with your spouse, and you've heard this report, and it's a report that you may have heard many times in your marriage, as this particular woman had heard. And so what might you do? Well, you might find yourself interrupting your spouse in a conversation. Without realizing it, you are angry and trying to get even. Or you might say a joke that would slightly humiliate your spouse. Or there might be some other subtle change of tone, some break with what is normal in your relationship, and you pretend that it's for other reasons. This will not make you happy. This will not heal the situation. This will not show your spouse that you truly love your spouse. It will just drive them further in the wrong direction, and you do not wish to do that. If you will pause you will see that you don't wish to do that. So how do you forgive your spouse? We've talked about this many times. It is almost impossible for you to tell yourself that what your spouse has done is understandable. And this is a very complicated and extremely difficult approach to forgiveness. The simpler way is to adopt some very direct and extremely simple procedure within your mind whenever your ego presents you with this line of thought. And the thing that we've suggested most here is just surrounding the person in light. A person who has not been forgiven is an agitated part of the mind. Please notice this. Every time that you have a grievance against anyone, there is a little part of your mind that's now jumping up and down. It's complicated. It's confused. Why is it confused and conflicted? Because this is not your true desire. So it is not fighting your true desire, but you know this is not your true de desire to condemn anyone, and so this part of your mind is very agitated. All you must do in order to forgive another person, and at the stage of learning we are in now, we do pick up little unforgivenesses all through the day. And the only thing that you must do is to still that part of the mind. You do not have to figure it out or rationalize it or do some complicated mental gymnastics. You just still that part of your mind. <clears throat> so you look at the person or the situation that where this occurred or the other person involved or whatever fantasy you have about it and you freeze it in your peace. You let your peace surround the person or the situation or the words spoken until they come to rest in your mind. You gaze at them with the vision of Christ, which is your vision. And so you use your peaceful, calm gaze.
gaze and you see all people and all things as wholly innocent. And you watch as this part of your mind comes to rest. Let's see, I think I'll do one more question and then if you'd like to bring something up, uh, we'll have some time for that. Well, this one actually is very close to the last one. What if my partner is not on a spiritual path? Uh, and, on, and so forth. There's, of course, many details that come, on, come up about that. What am I supposed to do in this situation? What am I supposed to do in that situation? What we must realize, above all else, is that we want to walk home. And to walk home, we must take steps... These, step, these steps seem to be exceedingly small. We don't seem to be making much progress, if any, in the beginning. Or we take uh, two steps forward, and then we seem to take five back. And that's the way it seems that things are going, until suddenly there's a moment, and you feel so much love and so much peace, that it doesn't seem right somehow, that these little efforts have, has, have resulted and such a blessing to your mind and to your life. Not to your life in the sense that it's added money to your bank account or all that silly stuff, but that you, for the first time, have known real happiness. So if you cannot believe this from anyone else, see if you can believe it from me. If you will make the efforts, they will add up, and your progress will be more rapid than you ever dreamed. But in the beginning, it doesn't seem that way. So you have this image of walking toward light. When we were taught, when the deacons uh, were talking about uh, getting playground equipment, we're going to make some changes in the Sunday school here uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to open it up to all kids and. We're going to do silly things like we did in the beginning, like uh, take them all out to Hagen Doss and so forth. And uh, uh, at our expense, you don't. Have <laughs> uh, but anyway, we're talking about what? Well, gosh, what could we do to make this a place where kids would just love to come here? First thing we realized, we couldn't teach them anything. That's the first thing. No teaching allowed. This is a very wise thing because kids. Young, especially young kids, are actually ahead of us. They are, they are already where we're trying to go, although they, of course, often lose this as they get older. And then we said, well, we would like playground equipment. And one of the deacons said, you know what? I would like for us to get a tunnel with the light at the end of it so I can get in it. <laughs> so you're walking home. It's going to take you X number of steps to get there. This should be very encouraging to you. It will only take X number of steps. You do not know how many that is, because if you did, it would hurt your progress at this point. When you're much further along, you will see how much further you have to go and what you must do in order to complete the journey. But at this point, you're just acting on what you believe in your heart with very little proof of anything about all this. But you do know this much. 
if you are not walking home this instant, you're standing still. And you want to walk home more than anything else. You want to walk toward the light of God. And so every situation presents you with an opportunity to take at least one or two steps. If you are living with someone that you do not think you are properly matched, someone that shouldn't be there, some mistake you made long ago when you were wild-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and uh, smoked too much dope or whatever was going on, you see. And now there's the situation. This is your number one hindrance to walking home. This must be recognized. Whatever is the primary relationship in your life, whether it ends up being your first holy relationship, there's no way for you to know. But I can tell you this much. You should treat it as if it were, even if it's the boss that you're having so much trouble with at home or the, uh, the judge, it, this case that you've been called up before, or whatever the things is, whatever is the primary relationship at the moment in your life, whether you think it will continue to be that or not. This is the door through which you must walk at this time. And you are making very little progress if you do not deal with the number one hindrance in your life. Now, you do not deal with it as a whole. This is the mistake that most people make. They look at their spouse all together, and they get very depressed. <laughs> Don't do that. Take your spouse or your boss or your sister-in-law or whoever it may be, and break her down into parts. You actually only have to deal with her or him one part at a time, if you'll notice. So take some simple part and deal with that. Deal with it very peacefully and very directly and very simply, so that in such and such a situation, which you cannot walk around, because if you can walk around it, of course you do that. If you can avoid it, of course you do that. But in this situation where you can't avoid this particular thing and you've got to come up against this person, take the time in the morning as your first priority to set clearly your goal for how you will do this. How do you wish to respond? What tone do you wish to carry through this day? How will you bring this tone into such and such a situation which you know is going to crop up? Then you're not just batted around by circumstances, which are the same circumstances, and you find yourself crying over the same series of events. This is not necessary. Make this your first priority. Make your primary relationship your first priority. It is your number one hindrance or your number one advancement. And whichever you may think it is, you treat it just the same. Okay. So, would anybody like to bring up anything? I know this is not... In the girls' club, this was a little more uh, understandable that we'd actually do this sort of unreligious thing that we, people might ask something. Uh, yes. 
a question concerning how to turn the other cheek in relationships. Uh, now, as I've said many, many times, everything that I will say to you and everything that you will read in A Course in Miracles has absolutely nothing to do with behavior. So never are you called upon to behave in a certain way because it's meaningless. It's with what you behave that makes the difference. So one parent can be quite stern with a child, but they do it with love, and the child just blossoms and smiles. Another parent can be quite permissive, but with fear, and the child is grossly unhappy. Or you can reverse the situation. The behavior is never the important thing, and never are you called upon to do anything. You're not called upon to have sex. You're not called upon to go to a marriage counselor. You're not called upon to spend such and such a money. You're not called upon to go to such and such a restaurant. You're not called upon to do anything. And you're not called upon to not do it. Forget the particular issue and go to your peace and say, in this situation, I want to continue walking home. I haven't been doing that. I stop dead cold every time this comes up. And I make no progress, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days, when this comes up. How can I continue to walk home? So you put your peace first, and that is exactly the same as putting the peace of the other person first. Those cannot be separated. There is no such thing as exclusive, true selfishness in the sense that we actually help ourselves. If you are truly helping yourself, you are, you are being kind. It is generally misunderstood that kindness calls for a lack of firmness. It does not call for that. You can be firm and kind at the same time. And so, of course, you say no to an outrageous demand, even though A Course in Miracles says that you should honor an outrageous demand, but it says from your brother. If you see that this is coming from your brother, it will not appear to you as an outrageous demand. But if it appears as if this is going to hurt you, then this is not what you're called upon to do. Because if you did it, what would happen? You would feel depressed and defeated and angry and irritated and confused. Is this what God is asking you to feel? So do not do anything that you know is going to cripple your state of mind. And do not not do it. Put aside the whole issue and seek the peace of God in this thing. Say, how might I act so that I would be peaceful and kind? A bodhisattva, a saint, a friend, whatever you wish to call it. How might I act? And you will see something that you can try. And you simply try it, and you see if it works. Does this help? If it doesn't help, you try something else. Why? Because what you do is not important. What's important is the peace of God.
Another question. A question concerning commitment in relationships. What we're striving for is to give everything and demand nothing. Now that sounds like being a doormat. You give everything and you demand nothing. You're committed to the Christ in this person, totally and completely, and it is your foremost thought and your whole preoccupation. And so it's, it's as if we're, we're walking down this magnificent beach and we happen to lean over and see the tiniest little speck of, uh, of petroleum that's washed up, a little speck of sludge. But there are miles and miles of miles of the whitest sand and the nicest breeze and this great, wonderful smell of salt and the, and the birds singing in the air, landing on the water, and so forth. There are children playing and everything. But we've turned and we've looked at this tiniest little bit of sludge. That is the ego of the person who stands before you. At this point, we are magnifying it to its everything. We think this is all there is to the person. This ego. You do not honor the ego. You do not say yes to the ego. But do not decide what the ego is. You and I made the same mistake. We wouldn't be here if we, didn't, if we hadn't made it. We've made the same mistake. You see the life that we have chosen. You see the trouble we've gotten ourselves in. We've dug ourselves quite a big hole. It's obvious that something has gone wrong, isn't it? There's too much this there's too much of a harness nest, isn't there? There's too many friends leaving and there's just it's quite confusing. As we go along it's more and more confusing. If you chose the wrong thing in the beginning, do you really wish to continue choosing? Are you a competent chooser? Are you a competent decider? Relinquish your role as decision-maker. Let your heart decide, your deeper self, the Christ within you. Let your heart decide what to do. Be committed to the light in this person. Be committed to their happiness and their peace. Say to yourself, my only function is to make life easier on this person. There is nothing in this universe that could be more important than that. That is the only thing that I have been asked to do in order to get home. My part is so small. To be willing to forgive. To be willing to be totally and absolutely committed to this person's advancement. But I will not decide what that means. What they should do or what they should stop doing. Where they should go, what they should say, or how I should relate to them. I will let my heart tell me this instant what to do. Another question. How do we know that when we attempt to be peaceful, 
we are not repressing our feelings. The way that you know that you're not repressing is that there is no deep sense of dishonesty about what you're doing. There's not a growing bitterness about the whole thing and, and a sort of consuming confusion about it. So suppression or denial comes about in this way. We think we ought to act in a certain manner toward a certain person. So, for example, let's say that, so, like for the, the, the first question, um, the, uh, we found out that our spouse is not being faithful to us. Now, we have an image as, as to how we're to act in a case like that. And we act that way, but don't believe that we really should be. We're letting them get away with something. Or someone speaks to us in a situation, and we find that our body is very agitated or angry, and we act as if we aren't angry. This happens a thousand times a day. Just notice it. You're acting out an image that you do not feel honestly. This is denial and suppression. However, the solution isn't to act out the confusion. You cannot honestly be confused. There's no way to honestly be conflicted. And when you try to voice your negative feelings or act them out, notice how confusing this is. Because they're in a swirl. This isn't the only thing you feel. And you don't even quite know what it is you feel or what it is you want to do in this situation. Do you wish to get the person fired? Do you want to humiliate them? Do you want to correct them and somehow save the world from this kind of person? What is it that you wish to do in this situation? You don't know. You can't honestly be confused. And so what do you do? Because you are confused, and you don't know what to do, and this has just been said, or this has just been done to you. Or here's the situation in the house, and how do you react to it? You must simply be as peaceful as you can be. And so you begin looking at another set of feelings. So it's not that you, you it's not that you fight one set of feelings. It's not that you're called upon to act in opposition to a particular set of feelings. You're called upon to be true to another set of feelings which you must see. Now once you are absolutely sure that there is this other set of feelings that in all situations, once you have come to realize, even if it's only intellectually, that there is a peaceful, forgiving, loving, kind, gentle part of you, and that it never goes out, that this flame burns strongly within your heart, whether you see it at the moment or not, you know it's still there. If you know that there's a part of you that's like that, even if it's only intellectually, then you can honor it, you can act as if that's the way you feel, because now you know it. 
And now if you decide not to attack back, not to snap at the person, or to act out this thing, there will not be this sense of honesty and sacrifice about it. There will be a sense of strength and advancement. You're strengthening yourself because you're siding with a part of your nature that you know is there. Even if it's only intellectual, you know it. And as you act on it, you will begin to actually feel its surface. You are a good person at heart. You are a good person under all circumstances at heart. There is a part of you that has already forgiven what just happened. If you honor that, even in your actions, you are not denying and suppressing. But if you do not take the time to acknowledge it and look at it and say, I will act from this, and you merely try to act differently than the present set of sensations or thoughts swirling in your head dictates, then you are indeed denying. But it will only complicate things if you do act on it. You will just merely bring more people into the problem if you do act this feeling out. So it's better that you do nothing. If you cannot, if you're so angry at the moment that you can't look at in your heart and see what you truly feel, it is not a good thing to go ahead and act out your angry feelings and get more and more people involved in this thing and make the, the problem more and more outside of your own handling and your own ability to handle. It's better that you do nothing. It's better that you stand there and be confused until you can take the time to look into your heart, which we're so frightened to do. We think there's all this sin and garbage in there. There's the gentlest light. You are a good, good, good person. You are a happy person in your heart. That cannot be touched, and nothing you've ever thought or done has touched it in the slightest. This ego we have constructed doesn't even know it exists. It suspects there's something, but it has no knowledge of where it's located. Well, this is a fairly uh, short question and answer period, because we had those wonderful, wonderful uh, songs. Um... Let me end with just uh, one more question that was written in uh, about insomnia. Uh, now, I'm not going to deal with, I'm going to deal with it in a very general way, so please don't turn off your mind because you don't have insomnia. I'll try to relate this to your experience. Um, And maybe the most general way that I can relate it is to take up this general assumption that what you fear happens to you. This is the craziest, most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my life. That what you fear happens to you. Um, looks like summer's never coming. That person says, I'm afraid you're right. You're afraid? Ah! No, don't be afraid. I want summer to come. See? <laughs> Wake up in the morning and, uh, God, I'm ten years older. What, 
What happened last night? You are not ten years older, and you're being afraid that you're ten years older doesn't make you ten years older. It can't make you ten years older. Afraid I'm coming down with a cold. Timber, coming down with a cold. Here it goes. Just If you'll just go through the day and look at all the things that you're afraid of, just look at your little fears. Of course, every once in a while, something happens that you're afraid of. But mostly, if you will just look at all the things you're afraid of, you will quickly lose this ridiculous assumption that what you're afraid of happens. There's no law there. What the law is, if you are afraid, the fear will take form in your experience in some way. But it does not necessarily take place in the way that you fear. And so, of course, you want to deal with the fear. Because you do not want fear taking form in your experience. All fear takes form. It, it is not helpful, though, to try to figure out what form it's taking or what fear is behind the form that you're judging against. Just notice that if you're afraid, this does complicate your life and does affect your body in some way, and you, don't, you wish to avoid that. And so you, you deal with the fear. John, uh, I'll start with this great big piece of machinery by the road, and, and uh, John and I got out. And uh, he asked me uh, what it was, and I said, it's a crawler tractor. And he didn't, suddenly he didn't want to get on it, because he just loves heavy machinery. You know, you're not, certain drugs you're not supposed to take because you can't drive heavy machinery. He just loves heavy machinery. He wouldn't get on. I said, why don't you get on? It's going to crawl. It's a crawler tractor. And he was sure it was going to crawl because it was a crawler tractor. Did that make the tractor crawl? Ah, but he was a child, so the law doesn't operate for a child. Well, when does it operate? It's 16 and a half? You see, it's ridiculous. But look at the damage this does. So people say, well, gosh, I'm afraid of birth defects. And I'm, my fear is going to cause a birth defect in my child. Don't do that to yourself. That isn't what causes birth defects. De defects. Of course you want to eliminate that fear. Take whatever steps you, you need to. To get a need to get an amniocentesis test, or you need to uh, stop taking a particular drug, or if you need to stop smoking, or whatever it is. You, of course you want to do that so you won't have the fear. I'm afraid I'm going to have a heart attack. And then the person thinks that their fear is going to bring about a heart attack. That is not true. That's not the way it works. Look at your fears and see that it doesn't work that way. I'm afraid so-and-so is going to die. And you think that your fear is killing them. It's not killing them. No, it's not helping them any. <laughs> but it isn't going to cause them to die. Okay. Um... Okay, this is the FBI meditation. So if you'll close your eyes. Now, let's pretend that there's a knock on your door. You open the door, and one of the men looks amazingly like Efren Zimblis Jr., Meditation. It's meditation now. Or 
the energy czar, uh, or the Russians, several men there, or the chairman of ways and men, whatever your figure of, uh, of authority is. And the man and his cohorts says, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. I think you better sit down for this, ma'am, sir. So that's why you're sitting down. It wasn't because of him. And the man says, the bad news is, we're taking away the future. Okay, so now right now, I want you to just think for a moment of all the fears you've had about the future. You've had a lot of fears about the future. Anxieties. Defeated dreams. That is going to be taken away from you. All of it. This is no loss. And we're taking away the past, the man says. Think now of the past. The embarrassments. The little defeats, the angers, the betrayals, the shadows, the long periods of darkness, the false starts. I'm going to be quiet just a moment. I want you to think of how much you do not need the future or the past. It's going to be taken away from you right now. And the man says, the good news is, we're leaving you with the present. And then they leave. Bye, bye, so long, so long. What does so long mean? I've won So long, so long, it sure is. I don't know what the, you know, so long. Well, anyway, that's what they say. So. I, the, old, the old expressions are the ones we should be using. Don't take any wooden nickels. Now that means something, so long. All right, so they go. Yeah. So now you're sitting there with nothing left but now. Make of this instant all there is and all there will ever be to your life. All you have now is now. The future has been taken from you. The past has been taken from you, but you are left with now. And the promise given is, it will always be now. Make of your life only now. And as you do this, remember you can bring whatever you wish to into now. You can bring peace and comfort and gentleness and a knowledge that you are loved. How loved as much as you wish to be? How much do you wish to feel loved right now? Don't be afraid to ask yourself that question. The great lover does not withhold anything from you. How loved do you wish to feel right now? How much at peace do you wish to feel 
right now. Make of this instant all there is to your life. Because you know it in your heart, say to yourself, I am so thankful that I am loved now. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. I am one with you. I couldn't change this if I tried with everything at my hands. I am one with you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. 